Boom! Coming in hot, Chichi. How we doing, my man? I couldn't be better. This person that we have on today, normally it's like your friends, your ball player friends who've been around talking about <laughs> sliders and all that stuff. This guy, I, I will say this, and I'm sure I've said it to him before, but I'll say it on our air right now. One of the biggest, biggest influences on my career, one of the best mentors I've ever had, and uh, I've been honored to call him a friend, and I'm honored to have him on the show today. Didn't think I was going to get that serious right there, but it's true. It's a fact. Jeez, you're getting that. You're getting serious. <laughs> it's a fact. fact. Well, dude, this guy's had a huge influence on my career, man. You go back to all the way when I was drafted in 1995. It was a big reason I was drafted by the Cleveland Indians in the second round. So I'm forever indebted to this guy and that whole organization. But you go back. This guy's been in Major League Baseball in 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 certain aspects for f- almost 41 years which is absolutely incredible. You're going to talk about that history. He was the general manager for the Rockies for 15 years, went to the World World Series in 2007, has been a part of some unbelievable players to come through that organization and some Hall of Famers too. We'll get into that stuff. And he's also been at the MLB Network with me and you as a colleague for the last seven, eight years, one of the best studio analysts out there in the game. Let's bring him in, our friend, Chinch. Yes. Dan O'Donnell. What's up, Danny? How you doing, brother? Well, well for Chinch, Chinch, you're going to make me cry before I ever... <laughs> I mean it all. Let's start Sir. talking. I mean it Jeez, all. In case you didn't... Case you just gave all the highlights, you didn't carry all the baggage through. So I hope you'll get to that at some point. <laughs> no, man. Only, only the good stuff in the mayor's office, Danny. Only the good stuff. Where are you, brother, right now? Yeah, we have a, so we live most of the year in Nashville. We moved to Nashville about four years ago from Denver, um, but we built a home down in Boca Grande, Florida, which is a little tiny 10 mile island on the West coast of Florida. So we try to get down here as much as possible. Hopefully someday get down here more often because uh, it's a beautiful island and it's my happy place. So, uh, you know, we love it. And so I'm down here right now. Yeah. Oh, that's nice, man. It's, I, 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 I'm up here in Pittsburgh. It's like, 17 degrees and snowing so i i, I think I would, i'd like to be where you're at there's, there's no doubt about it yeah i've been there so i've been there Dave. you'll get there <laughs> yeah you know you know i know what cleveland's Dan- like i know you do brother i know you do danny i want to go um i want to go back a little bit before we get into you know some of the stuff now in in, in baseball but i want to go back to the history of, of of yourself growing up um, you know, we talked about it earlier on, early on, you were, you weren't raised on a dairy farm, but your dad was in the, your dad and mom were in that, in that industry, right? Could you well, talk- actually, you know, when, uh, when I was little, we called O'Dowd's Dairy. So it was an institution yeah. uh, in a little town called Pine, Pinebrook, New Jersey. Uh, it was an institution for in the twenties and thirties back then case, they actually had their own dairy, but they had a milk bar. They had a bowling alley. They actually had a little nightclub. It was like the, the happening place that was long before I was born, but I was born. There were still working cattle. Uh, my uncle was a trotter racer. Uh, so he had trotter horses on the property. Um, you know, we had a little home uh, on the big, big property that was considered the, you know, O'Dowd's dairy. And then as it matriculated, it began to become more of a, just a production dairy. Uh, but I grew up around the dairy business because that's what my my dad did. Wait, the trotter thing—that's the police acting, right? We're sitting on the correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do have this vision of Danny sitting on one of those horses. <laughs> He's just a little big for a <laughs> <laughs> That's so that's so great, man. But base, baseball obviously seemed like your first love. Uh, yeah, it seemed like you know you were a good good player in high school. You played a little ball in college. You know, can you just yeah, take I, us through? Wasn't a good player. I was a good, really good player in high school. Uh, but not a good player in college. That's when the rea- reality set in. 
I went to college down at Rollins College. I, I get life changing experience for me because I met Boyd Coffee, who he just he turned me from a boy into a man. That's where you and, met Boyd. Uh, I was with Boyd a little bit in Cleveland. Yeah, I that's hired unbelievable. Boyd in Cleveland. Oh, did you really? So good. tell yeah. me that relationship with, between you and Boyd Coffee. I did not know this. Well, Boyd, I was a walk on at Rollins, uh, preferred yeah. walk on. And um, I mean, I played, I followed a guy named Johnny Castino, who was a rookie of the year for the Minnesota Twins. So, I mean, when I saw him play, I was like, oh, God, I'm never going to play here uh, because he was so phenomenal. I was a third baseman, too. I mean, Boyd just turned me from a boy into a man. I can't say it any other way. He, uh, I went there as an immature kid from New Jersey, thought I had all the answers to the world. And uh, he slowly, surely just kicked my butt on a daily basis for four years and uh, just formed a wonderful mentoring relationship Um he really just turned my whole life around and I had a great experience there. You know, and I, I think the realization for me as I got into my sophomore, I mean, you always dream of doing what you did, but the realization for me was I always had this inkling of gravitating. Every time we play a game, I'd evaluate the other players on the field. I'd evaluate our own teammates. I was fascinated with why he did some of the development things that he did. I'd always be asking him questions. So by my senior year, I was almost like a grad assistant for him, even though I was still playing and getting my degree but I was more of a coach than a player. And I just felt like that was going to be my career. And so anyway, I mean, the Lord continues to nudge you along the way throughout your entire life. And that certainly was a nudge for me. One going there. And then number two is, you know, as I was there beginning to realize what my path was going to be. So okay. how did, so after, after Rollins college, how did you end up getting into, in, into professional baseball? Well, it's crazy story case is that uh, first of all, I had to get a job because you know, obviously it wasn't from any money. <laughs> And so I was selling copiers, literally on the East Coast of Florida. Uh, I was living in a condo overlooking the water. But literally, I had a station wagon, and I would roll copiers into every small little business, you know, little real estate office, printers, printing companies. I'd roll them in, try to sell them copiers. It was a miserable job. Um, but I did it because, you know, and I was good at it simply because I had to be. I had no choice because I had, a, I had bills to pay. Uh, at that point in time, there was a program called Major League Baseball's Executive Development Program. Bowie Kuhn, that's how old I am, was the commissioner. And every year they would hire uh, two people out of, you know, I don't know, guys. I mean, I could exaggerate and tell you how many applicants. There were, you know, thousands. And uh, so I went to a regional office with a guy named, I went to a, re I applied, uh, I had a phone interview, I passed that, went to a regional interview with a guy named Jimmy Johnson, who at that point in time, was a larger than life cigar smoking, heavy drinking guy, <laughs> you know, just incredible guy. He was based in St. Petersburg, Florida, and he was running minor league baseball and he was part of their search committee. So I interviewed with him and we hit it off. And then, so my final interview was a great story. I mean, I thought it was a great story. So I go in for an interview and I'm sitting in the waiting room and I meet the other candidates because we were all there one day to get uh, for the final interview. And I met Wendy Selig. Uh, she was a candidate. So I knew one spot was already gone because Wendy was going to get that job. And right. she was she was great. But she was great, too. She's really bright and articulate and a really good person. That's obviously that's Bud's daughter, obviously. That's Bud's daughter. And years yeah. later, you know, she offered me a job at the Brewers, you know, which is a really cool story, too. But wow. anyway, there was a, a dozen of us for two spots. I was the only one that, in the room that wasn't from an Ivy League school. And mm -hmm. I was the only one that didn't have an MBA from – or a law degree from an Ivy League school. So <laughs> when, like, they were all big dealing me, because uh, I went to Rollins College, which is not quite an Ivy League school. 
not even in the same vicinity or area code. Uh, Still good school. So I went, uh, I went into that interview and I had one of those, like, I've got nothing to lose here, dude. So, I mean, I just let it fly. I said, like, basically, you can hire all those other guys out there. And I'm sure they're way intellectually more gifted to me, but they don't know anything about the game of baseball. And they can really care less about the game of baseball. Anyway, da, 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 da. I ended up getting the job. And then, so I started working for the commissioner's office back in, in 81, uh, going into 82. And basically, I was a glorified go-getter. I got Bowie Cunes, dry cleaning, his coffee, his, oh. his donuts <laughs> in the morning. I pulled his car around. Uh, I worked on some cool projects, too, for with a guy named Bill Murray, who ended up being another mentor for me, just a wonderful human being. And uh, from there, I got to know Wendy exceptionally well because we worked together every day. And then from there, I, uh, I interviewed with the Baltimore Orioles, a guy named Lou Michelson, who was running their sales area. So my first job, guys, uh, basically was a two-headed job. I, uh, I ran a, a group called the Designated Hitters, where a group of volunteers volunteer salespeople for the Orioles. Um, so they sold the bulk of the Orioles season tickets for all business people in the community, which is really cool for me because they were all great people. And I got to meet a lot of people in the Baltimore community rather quickly. But my other add-on job was uh, I sold – the Orioles played at Old Memorial Stadium, so they had no – they had one little ticket booth at the stadium. So most of the tickets were sold in little wooden ticket booths that surrounded because it was in a neighborhood. They surrounded the ballpark. So every night I'd walk out with my little tin box of tickets and cash with an off-duty police officer. I'd walk into my little hot box and I'd sell tickets to everybody walking up to the game. And I got to know so many people. They'd bring me, they'd always try to fix me up with uh, some cousin or relative, you know, I mean, it was constant trying to be fixed up, which I, I dodged as much as I could, but they bought me meals. They invited me over to dinner. I mean, honestly, it really got me to understand the game of baseball at a grassroots level from a fan's perspective, because I was interacting with the very people that actually worked so hard to buy tickets to go to the Oriole games. So I, I, it was just a God given thing for me. And I, you know, I did that for a period of time and then, you know, I started moving up into other areas of the organization. Can I go back yeah. to one well, thing you just said real quick? I'm sorry, Sean, about yeah, go when go you said you're the guy, you weren't the Ivy league guy, everybody had their MBAs, everybody had that. We're going to get into your, your amazing career later, but just back to that moment right there. Do you think that helped influence you on judging talent when you started hiring people later in your life that you weren't the Ivy League guy? You know, people go out, it's like, oh, here's my resume. It's like auditioning for a movie. Well, this guy has 900 credits and I don't, but maybe you were the right, you were the right guy to be hired there. And it's not easy in yeah, today's I mean, business world for people to say, oh, I got to take yeah, the Ivy League change. guy over that guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the most crucial aspect of being a successful executive in any company uh, is your ability to hire the right people. I think it's the hardest skill to do. I think you really don't know somebody until you work with them. But I think if you can identify certain traits within an individual, it makes the transition possible. Now, I, I do believe in intellect. I do believe the people that process thought quickly, problem solve, or creative thinkers, um, those institutions do lend themselves to challenge kids a lot harder. Uh, to be able to be good in those areas. I think that's why they've now flooded the, the big leagues the way they have. But that shouldn't exclude anybody else that went to, you know, uh, Greensboro Central or any other college, because I think in, each individual is based upon their own set of circumstances in some ways. If you can find an intellectually gifted kid that's grinding their way through those type of situations, they're going to be way more mentally tougher than anybody else, which is one of the defining characteristics of a good front office person. So anyway, that's a good question. 
Dan, you being the leader that you've been all these years, you know, all the, you know, running the organizations, all the things you did, what are those traits? What are the traits that you really looked for people that when you were, when you were to hire, hire them? Well, I, I think three things I talked about case one, you process thought quickly. Uh, you're a great problem solver. Um, you're a creative thinker. You uh, speak, you, you can present your thoughts in a coherent way and then you write well. Uh, but beyond that, then I call them qualities of the heart. Uh, selflessness, the ability to listen, uh, empathy for others, um, the ability to want to learn, walk in a room, not thinking you're the smartest person in the room. Hopefully you leave that room learning a little bit more than what you did. You did a tireless worker, somebody that uh, is not interested in quality of life when they start their career is more interested in making a difference. Somebody that has the ability to create uh, t authentic relationships. There's a big gap for me between relationships and authentic relationships. Like, I think it's one of your greatest gifts, uh, Case, is that uh, uh, regular relationships are surface-based. They're, they're shallow. They're, you know, they're, they don't really cut to the heart. People that create authentic relationships, they have this unique ability to dig in on other people and really get to know them in a way that they can make a difference in their lives and such make a difference in their own lives. It's a really special trait to have, and not many people do. You have that. Trace, uh, Trace, you've always had that. I didn't necessarily identify that when I was young. I honestly, I couldn't identify any of these things with you when I was young because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this just came with years of making mistakes and, and learning along the way. But I actually think the qualities of the heart are more important than the intellectual gifts uh, because I think the qualities of the heart create the kind of culture that people flourish in. I think intellectual gifts create a culture that uh, is more selfish, selfish-oriented. Mm. Who were some of your biggest influencers? Like, who were some of the guys that, that you really learned from to, to understand, you know, really what you just said? Yeah, well, um, honestly, Boyd Coffee. well, my, you know, obviously my mom and dad established me work ethic um, and the ability to dream because I was a big dreamer when I was young. I mean, I grew up in Pinebrook, New Jersey, became a GM. So if I wasn't a dreamer, right. <laughs> I had no chance, which I do think uh, actually God put that on my heart. But again, I didn't realize any of that either until I got older. Uh, so Boyd Coffee certainly gave me a foundation of discipline. And then Hank Peters. I mean, I, Blue Michelson gave me my first opportunity, and Lou is an unbelievable human being. But um, it was uh, Hank Peters who really took me underneath his wing. He was the GM at the time of the Orioles. And back then, GMs oversaw both the business and the baseball operations. And for whatever reason, Hank liked me, and he saw something in me that other people didn't. So when he left to go to the Indians, he bought me with him. He got let go by Edward Bennett Williams and he became the president of the Indians. <clears throat> Soon after that, I got fired by Roland Heeman. And a great story there is because I got fired the day after Thanksgiving. My stuff was all piled up outside the office when I pulled up to work. <laughs> and uh, Roland Heeman told me I should look to do something else because I, I didn't have a career in the game of baseball. Oh my gosh, <laughs> really? What? Yeah. Oh Little did he Oops. know I was going to take a job with the Indians right after he let me out the door. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, but you know, that, you know, I, one, I appreciated his candor and it gave me a little bit of chip on my shoulder, um, which I always think is a good thing from a competitive standpoint, but it also is understanding is that, you know, things in life are very fleeting. You know, some people look at you one way, another person look at you another way. So uh, when Hank Peters bought me to, to Cleveland, you know, John Hart and I had a unique relationship. I, I don't know if I consider John a mentor as much as I consider him just a really good friend. Um, because I think we, we learned a lot from one another. And then actually looking back on it, uh, the Indians, I mean, I love my time in Colorado, but my best time in the game of baseball by far um, was the Indians because the skill set of the jobs that I had there matched the blessings that God gave me. 
And then when I left the uh, Indians, I had three job opportunities. Um, it was the Orioles again. Wendy Selig offered me the job as the GM there. Um, the Rockies job that I took and Chuck uh, Armstrong offered me the job of the GM with the Seattle Mariners. I couldn't take the job with the Mariners, probably the best baseball opportunity because my I'd gotten married and my mother-in-law's health was, you know, um, not great, not bad. I just didn't want to do that to my wife so far away. And in hindsight, I probably should have taken the Milwaukee job just because I think it would have been a better baseball job. But I was drawn to the Rockies because of Kelly McGregor, who ended up being, I would say, my spiritual mentor. mentor. Kelly taught me what it means to be a Christ-like person through his his uh, actions, his words, uh, how he challenged me, how he loved me unconditionally with all of my baggage. Um, he got me to look at the relationships differently and my life differently. I became a way better husband, father. I think I became a better leader through all the adversity there. And so I always wondered why I ended up in Colorado, because it certainly wasn't because I won a lot of games out there, because that's a tough place to win in. But I think it was because God was trying to mold my character into the kind of person that he thought I had a chance to be that I hadn't really figured out on my own how to become. Mm. So I would say those were the people that were the biggest influences in my in my, my life, other than, you know, my wife's my best friend now. Yeah. Certainly the most biggest influence in my wife as we sit day in and day out. Your journey, you know, I, I, like I said at the beginning, you know, when you look back at those Cleveland days, as you said earlier, you know, that was a big part of, you know, getting you the job out in Colorado because they, they were the most successful organization right. at the time. I mean, you know, there were so, so many unbelievable people that came out of there from Mark Shapiro to Neil Huntington to Ben Charrington to Paul DePodesto. Uh, the, Josh the list, Burns. Antonetti, yeah. Josh Burns. It's incredible the guys that you hired, you know, that you yeah. that you and John had under you. It's, it's phenomenal, really. The so just let's, keep, of... let's clarify that. John never hired anybody. He was too busy doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> that you hired. <laughs> yeah. I set some records straight on some yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? The beauty of that is John gave me the, the freedom to do that, yeah. which is a testimony to his lack, his uh, lack of insecurity. Yeah. that he gave me the ability to hire. You know what, Case? Um, I always wondered when I read books on Stephen Jobs and Apple's creation and Bill Gates and Microsoft, I actually feel back in the early 90s with the tribe, well, now it's the Guardians, but back then the tribe, that we were that. We were like this think tank, think tank of creativity. We had yeah. hired so many bright young people that challenged every single day with a simple philosophy, which ended up being a philosophy that I really espoused everywhere I went is, you know, like, why do we do that that way? I mean, just mm. that simple statement in question, why, why do we do it that way? Like the whole group of us every single day challenged the conventional thinking of why we did things a certain way. And uh, it just led to some unbelievable breakthroughs as far as scouting and development. Like we were the first team in the history of baseball to have it's going to sound like cliche and not really big now, but back then it was. We had individual player plans like you had one, yeah. like if you know, it was physical, fundamental, mental. And so what it did was it's something I desperately wanted to do. And again, I think that was a God thought is that every single player in our organization would know where they were at at every single moment, uh, both physically, mentally and fundamentally. But what that also did, it gave me a pathway to evaluate the staff for the quality of work they were doing, because if they couldn't make players better, in what was defined by them and the player, then obviously, you know, that staff person was going to get a, uh, a bad report card from me. And I was a very, very hard grader. And so um, just those little things like that put us on the cutting edge. Like I, I really believe with 
Cleveland organization, we took, I, I consider, I put players into three categories, impact, contributors, value. I think we took value players and made them contributors. And I think we took contributor players and made them impact players. And I think we took impact players and made them superstars because we dug in on them in a way that never had been done before in the history of the game. And now everybody does it, but we were by far the first, we were so far, the way we advanced scouts, the way we uh, uh, approached opponents' weaknesses, the way we put uh, war value on players before war was even a thing, how we evaluated contracts, our multi-year contracts were the first time any club had ever done what we did. So we were truly like the Apple or Microsoft of baseball back in the 90s. Well, I, I always I always laugh because you know when Moneyball became such a big thing. Oh, Moneyball and yeah, Deep Podesta goes out yeah. goes out to Oakland. I'm like I'm like this is Cleveland. I'm like this is this is so what let me, Cle- let, Cleveland let me tell did you this. all this. Let me tell you the Depot story. Yeah. So you know uh, I got let go. People don't know this. I got let go uh, with the Indians in 1998 because I was um, I was under a long term contract, but when I signed the contract. Uh, John had made it pretty clear to me that, you know, there'd be a, a transition here where he would become the president of the club and I'd become the GM. Well, about six months into that, John decided that he didn't want to do that, which is totally, totally up to him. Like he, you know, I mean, he's a baseball guy. Right. So I kind of said, well, you know, that's not what I signed up for. And he kind of said, well, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck. And then back then Peter Angelos uh, called me for a job interview. And so uh, John came to me about it and said, you know, I've declined it because you're under contract. You can't leave. And I said, well, actually, you know, I don't really think I signed that contract, you know, with the understanding that this was going to happen. He goes, well, I'll go to Dick about it, but ultimately it's not going to be good for you if you try to break this contract. I said, well, just hear what he wants to say. Well, Dick got upset. He's the owner of our club because I'm sure John didn't present it to him like, well, you know, I told Sam this. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I interviewed for the Oriole job. I flew in on a Saturday, a Sunday morning. We're in the postseason against the Yankees. One of his sons, Louie, picked me up at the airport. I got to his uh, uh, law offices in downtown Baltimore. And prior to this, Hank, uh, Pat Gillick had called me and said, you don't want that job. And I said, yeah, well, I'm kind of stuck here, though, Pat. I, I wouldn't mind just seeing what it's about. He goes, well, I'm just telling you. You go to that interview, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And I thought, you know, Pat was saying, yeah, well, maybe, but let me just go myself. Now, this is where I was still at the age where I was dumb and I thought I had all the answers and my pride got in the way of my common sense. Truly. I mean, it certainly did because my pride was hurt. And uh, when you make decisions with pride and ego, they're always bad decisions. And so, um, guys, it's a great story and I've never shared it, but I walk in to an interview with Peter Angelos. He waits like 45 minutes and I got a flight to catch because we got a game that, that evening against the uh, Yankees a do or die game. And um, the, uh, I get to the interview. He walks in the boardroom is about 75. I mean, it's gigantic, like 50 to 75. I sit on one side. He sits all the way down the other <laughs> side. <laughs> And then Louie, his son, was in there with me. He said, Louie, you can get out. And so for the next 20, 25 minutes, he tells me exactly what needs to be done with the club. I want this guy gone. I want that guy gone. I want this guy gone. I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to pay for that. I don't say a word. And so finally he stops and goes, so like I'm now 10 minutes in this interview, and I go, I got no chance for this job, and I don't want this job. (laughs) So I said, I got two choices here. So I got – the good guy on one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder about what question I should ask. 
And of course, again, being, you know, big ego and stupid pride, I asked the question that came from the devil, which was, hey, how many partners do you have here in the firm? And I already knew the answers. But he had 250 lawyers and no partners. And so he looks at me and goes, you know, you're a smart ass, aren't you? (laughs) That's what he says to me. (laughs) And then he just says casually, he goes, this is not going to work. You know that, and I know that. You're a smart-ass Irishman, so you can, you know, Louis, wow. you can take him back to the airport. And uh, I then, we got knocked out that night, and then two days later, I had to clean my office out. And Because um, wow. if I took the job and didn't get it, I lost my job in Cleveland. Oh, my God. How old and were you so, for context? Uh, for context, for anybody getting How old were you right uh, then? I don't even remember, change. So that was... Like I took the uh, Rockies job at the end of 99. So it was 1998. I was born in uh, 59. So what? what is that? So 59, 69, 79, 80, so 30, Early 30s. 31. Wow. That's some but stones I had, you know, at that age. Oh, again, ego and pride. And my wife was <laughs> devastated because she loved Cleveland. And if I had just stayed patient there, it had all worked out. Um, but, you know, again, I wasn't mature enough, emotionally mature enough to make good decisions. When, but anyway, getting back to the the uh, money ball. So Billy Bean called and offered me a job because Billy and I were best of friends during that era because we were like two of the younger ones. He was the assistant GM underneath Sandy Alderson with Oakland. I was the assistant GM in Cleveland. So he said, come on out to Oakland with me, move out here. We'll, we'll have a blast together. You and I doing this. And so I sat down with Jackie and she goes, yeah, man, I, I think you need to give it some time here before you jump back in that again. And so I did. I interviewed for a job with ESPN, by the way, and was offered that analyst job that year. Um, I didn't take that, but I recommended Paul D. Bedesto to Billy. So that's how Paul D. Bedesto wow. ended up in Oakland. Is it really? So that whole money ball oh my God. total <laughs> bullcrap. Wow. So wow. Well, Br- Brad Pitt's Brad Pitt's glad you, you did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and Paul, no, Paul and I were really, really close at that point. We've you know well, not as close well, anymore. I, really I did, I did, right I did think with the Moneyball thing, Dan, because I I knew the I knew the backstory because obviously I came up with the Indians. I knew all the stuff that you guys had done, and and what was funny was, uh, you know, I I remember when I when I were when I went over to the Reds and then I went down to the minor leagues and you saw how they did everything. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, you know, at that stage of my career, how young I was. Even the years I was in the minors with the Indians, I was like, these guys treat us like big leaguers. They they give us big league food. They're like like the um, just the way we thought on yeah. like the strength the strength training side. We all we had strength you know strength training coaches, and I just fit, felt like you guys were at a different level. That that the nineties Indians yeah, we were at were. a different level from yeah, we development, were. from scouting, from everything. And when you look back at those teams, Dan, I, I want to ask you: look back at those teams. Because people still reference it nowadays. You talk about the 2022 Braves. They say, "Oh man, they're doing it like the '90 Indians did it when they signed, when they when they went out and drafted Ramirez, drafted Tommy, got Bayerga, Loft, and Bell. Then they signed him to these long-term contracts and all that stuff." Can you just take us back to those times that that really was thinking outside the box back when when you guys were doing all that stuff with the Indians? Yeah, well, we called it our white paper and uh, we, you know, because Cleveland at that point in time, as you guys know, or if you don't know, there was like a stomping ground where players would come and then players would move on as they became good in their career. The franchise was just a, basically it was a door, a swinging door. Um, Players come, players go. So when we started to identify talent, 
you know, like it always gets back, guys. You got to be able to identify talent. If you can't identify talent, I mean, you're just not going to be very good in these jobs. So, and John was good at that. John, John knew talent. He really did. And um, so as we began to identify talent, the, the next challenge came. So how do we hold on to this talent? So we had a guy named Frank Casey. He actually worked with Rob Manford uh, when Rob worked at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus. He handled our arbitration cases. We also hired Frank to be what we call our strategic thinker, to look at our operations and come up with ideas. So Frank and I, late at night, created the long-term contract scenario and realizing, okay, here are the risks, here are the rewards, because we didn't hit on every player. We missed on Jack Armstrong and Scott Scott. We missed on pitching more than we missed on position players. And uh, then, you know, John did an incredible job of selling our owner. Uh, At that point in time, Hank was retiring and John was so good with our owner and John got Dick Jacobs to sign off on it. And I remember uh, Tucson, Arizona spring training underneath the bowels of, um, of uh, we were a little closet at high corporate field. And uh, we knew that we had to get one key player signed to start the ball rolling. And for whatever reason, Sandy Alomar Jr. And I had a wonderful relationship and his agent was Scott Boer. So I knew I'd never get Scott to agree to it. So I did what you're not supposed to do, but you know, since I'm not running a team anymore, I don't care. Um, is I talked to Sandy directly. Um, and then he tur- turned around and talked to Scott, but Sandy was the first one that signed the long-term multi-year contract and the Bayerga went after, and then it became just like a snowball effect where, but you know, we treated everybody fairly. I can tell you, Scott Boris, that was my first time that I felt the full wrath of SB. And uh, <laughs> I mean, he bought it, man. He really bought it. He bought it all to me. I've had many more after that, but he really bought me that one. Uh, but Sandy was incredibly high character kid, as you know, Case. He's just when he gives his word to do something, he, he's not he's immovable. Turned out to be a really good decision for him, too, because he had so many injuries in his career. He made a lot of money off that first contract. So it ended up being a real blessing for him. And then it just became something that just everybody came on board with. And it really allowed us to keep the core of those great Indian teams together because we're still in a market that probably couldn't afford it to keep those guys. Yeah, it was incredible. It was, I I even look back to 1995, 96, they had, you guys had the winter development program that Mark Shapiro was running and you guys were all there, but the, our top 10 prospects were like me, um, Bartolo Colon, uh, uh, Danny Graves, Enrique Richie Wilson, Sexton. Richie Sexton, Brian Giles, Brian Giles. I mean, we were we eight I of mean, us. Just crazy stuff. Eight, eight of us went on to be all stars with other teams. Eight guys I mean, of those top ten stuff. prospects. It was crazy, but it was crazy to see how you guys developed, how you guys drafted, how you evaluated talent. Like I said, it, it was really at a different. It was really at a different level. It was really impressive being a prospect during that time. The one prospect I want to talk about who who was only a couple years older than me, but he had been to the big leagues so quickly, and you guys nailed it because he wasn't a top round pick he wasn't a guy that you know i don't think every organization thought he was going to be a superstar but jim tomey take us back to drafting jim tomey and developing him because he was start off as a third baseman and i don't think and, and initially Actually, he didn't came really in have as a shortstop did he really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't last long at shortstop, but he actually came <laughs> in as a shortstop. You know, really, I, you know, I think that key or the, and it's gotten away from this in the game, but the, the foundation of an organization are your area scouts. You know, if you can really find the right area scouts and then empower them, uh, teach them how you want players evaluated. So 
for me, throughout my entire career, my scouting philosophy, philosophy those that it, has it evolved, to have the foundation that was so simple, Case, that's why we drafted you, is let's not overcomplicate this thing. Let's not get caught up on the tools except one. The rest of them, you know, if he's a functional defender, your player development system should make him an average defender. If he's an average defender, our player development system should make him a great defender. I don't care if he's a plus runner. I don't care about his arm strength. I really don't care about any of that. Just go out and find one thing. Who can hit? Okay. <laughs> and that's where you found Sean Casey. How did you guys – can you dive a little into that? How did you find Sean Casey? He's obviously had a great college career, but Richmond kid had trouble getting into colleges, right, Sean? But you guys nailed it. Could. 302 career I hitter. Mean, when you really simplify – and Case knows this now as he watches the game from his perspective – you know, it's, it's it's difficult, but easy. It's just scouts, too many people in the game of baseball overthink what they see. And so when they see something they really like, what happens with a lot of evaluators, they begin to go back and continually look at it to try to find the issue. So what happens with a guy like Case, you walk in the ballpark and you watch him take BP and you see him lining balls all over the field like I did. You see balls up, he barrels up. You see balls down, he barrels down. You see balls in, he's got a field to pull his hands in and keep the barrel of the bat on it. You see balls that sink away from the barrel of his bat and he's got the ability to line it the other way. I mean, this is not rocket science. But then what happens? I say, okay, I've got an eight bat, which for me, Case was coming out of co- – I mean, if he could run, he would have stayed an eight bat at the big league level. But because he couldn't, he was a seven bat, a seven bat, like – a tier below an eight bat. Like there's no eight bats in the game. And, but then scouts would go back and say, okay, you know what? He doesn't run well. And, you know, the power's not projectable. And I don't know about the body type being able to age. well. I mean, these are all the things I heard from other organizations about case. And every time I go to a ballpark and I'd hear him, I go, oh, then I would stir it up even more. <laughs> about just adding on oh yeah you're wow look at that because we didn't overthink those things and then look look what happens he he's a gold glove defender he he had one of the more accurate arms from many different angles for that position in the game he has a durable body and he continued to rake and the power came and so we just knew we had a we had a great hitter and you know what you'd like to have every kid take that's great here there's just really not that many of them in every draft <laughs> you yeah. know you just can't get enough of them in every draft I, I thought that was I think that's funny Dan because it is true I I, I still remember how guys evaluate talent I still remember like in, in high school I'd go to we we run the 60 and I would never come back for day two and I'm like hey do you have a shirt and they're like no Sean Casey no you're and I'm like and I used to think to myself is this a track tryout or baseball? Like, cause I can exactly. hit, you know what I mean? Like what, who's evaluating at the end of the day, you can't steal first. You can't steal first so, in this game. You have to be able to hit to play baseball. In case that has been my thought process, my entire career. Um, I'd always look at the game and go, okay, like why do we run the 60? Because we never run 60 yards straight in our game. So I let our scouts do it, but then we started getting everybody's time after the 30 because you do do that. And so, like, your start to finish 30 was probably average. Like, you don't need any more than average. But, you know, if you've got to run a 60, it's going to be below. And so I always look for a little competitive advantage in the traditional thought process of the game. Um, 
And that's a perfect example of that. And we did that so wonderfully well in Cleveland. And I try to take that same philosophy to Colorado. Um, it's just, it was a whole different beast and it literally just kicked my ass. I mean, just literally was something I had never experienced in my entire life. Yeah. Why, why is, what is it about Colorado that makes it a different beast? Well, from my perspective, you know, I was a farm director when the Indians had a team in Colorado Springs. And so I thought maybe I had some understanding of altitude baseball. It turns out I had little to none. It's just the game of baseball is, is, wasn't created to be played in climactic conditions where the actual effects of the environment controls the movement of the baseball and the physical wear and tear on your players. And so where in the history of the game do you have, you know, baseball is a game of, of like, I tell people why hitters can hit the way they do not to get overly scientific with you, but it's called, you know, I've studied all, it's all I've done my whole life. It's the cognitive wrapping of your brain. So like when you execute a skill over and over and over and over and over again, you know, you're, you're, you're mapping your brain to be able to execute that skill effortlessly. That's like when you watch a big leaguer field a ground ball or hit a 98 mile an hour fastball and from a common person, they go, well, how do they do that? What they don't know, that's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of repetition of doing the yeah. same thing. <laughs> right. Okay. Now you go to Colorado and you map the brain while you're at home because the ball moves one way. It doesn't move. Mm. So you're home for a week and you see the ball out of the hand, you bounce rhythm and timing, you hit. You go to San Diego or San Francisco, even better, which is actually a little bit below sea level. You see the same ball out of the hand, the same pitch. Now the ball moves because its movements created mass against air. And there's no air in Colorado, but in San Francisco, it's heavy, heavy air. So you take the same swing, the ball moves just millimeters differently. What happens? You foul the ball off. If you're an elite hitter, you foul the ball off. If you're not an elite hitter, you swing and miss. miss. Now what happens, you do a couple days of that, which is really truly a physical phenomenon, quickly becomes a mental phenomenon. I can't hit anymore. And I've had the, the best hitters in the game go through this. Like I had a guy named Todd Walker for me. He was one of the best hitters. I think yes. Todd Walker was like I, a natural he, hitter. He, he got halfway through a season with us and didn't want to even play on the road because wow. he was so mentally locked up because he was so freaked out about the environments. I don't know how you combat that. I mean, well, I would don't. You, would, you, would you, Danny, would you find guys like the first day or two of a road trip that you got, you would struggle, the, the, the lineup would struggle more those first couple days of a road trip? The deeper the season went on, earlier on, our road trips were better because we trained in Arizona and then we'd have come back, come back. It's the deeper the season got on where your home stands were a little longer and your road trips were a little longer and the physical wearing tear of playing a mile above sea level, which is the other phenomenon. Because you're playing an anaerobic sport that's constantly tearing muscle fibers a mile above sea level with no oxygen. <laughs> and so you don't replenish your red blood cells, so you're never healing your small little micro tears. You know, like what baseball does. You know, you, your yeah. groin's a little tight. It yep. just adds up. So as the season goes on, you physically begin to wear down. The movement patterns take effect. And all of a sudden, the, the game begins to crush you mentally when the game is hard enough mentally. And that's what people just don't get about. That's not to say you can't win out there. It just, you know, it, it, it'll happen in small little isolated moments. 
and then the residual effect catches up with you. So you, you have to build a team to win, and then you have to be able to tear it down and build it again and continually do that cycle, which is really hard on your employees and really hard on your owner and really hard on your fan base. Yeah. Wow. Were, were you guys getting like pitches? Were there are there people that were coming in going, I figured out the Colorado Air with like absurd like shark tank pitches? Or were you guys doing like sports science on this stuff? Like we were, and we found there's a couple things that worked. One, obviously, the base on ball is a killer there. So four seam commander your fastball or Aaron Cook type sinkers work there. Um breaking balls don't. So don't. slurs like Jason. I, I breaking, remember face I remember facing Daryl Kyle with the Rockies and then with the Cardinals and I'm like, is this a new guy? Because with okay. the Rockies, that curveball didn't do anything. First uh first week into the job, I get a call from Barry Axelrod, Daryl's agent. And he there uh Barry Axel and I were dear friends. And he said, Hey I need you to do me a favor. I want you to trade Daryl Kyle. And I go, he's our best one of our best pitchers. He goes, well, he won't be because if you don't trade him, he's retiring. So you got two choices here. You got to move him and get something back where he's walking away for the game. He will never pitch another day in that ballpark. It has got him <laughs> totally, totally mentally fried. Wow. So I walked right into that. Like, like wow. Jimmy Leland was the job. First, I, I got there at the very end of the season. He, Jimmy was a great guy. So he, my very first game was like the they are like last three games of the season. We won that game. He took the lineup card. He signed it for me. He framed it. And gave it to me with a little note attached. And he said, you have no idea what you have gotten yourself into. Good luck. Boom. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> was he right? Uh, so was I mean, he right? Was he right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It totally, I mean, it totally overwhelmed me. And um, I'm proud of what we did there. I'm proud of the system we put together. I'm proud of the people that have come out of there. But, uh, I mean, I was done. I mean, I really, truly – I was probably done a few years prior to even leaving. It just – you know, you play this game to win, and when you, you can't figure out a formula that you can duplicate winning on a consistent basis, emotionally it just it drains your tank. And you can't sit there in the job and say what I'm saying today because all that looks like is a guy who can't get the job done is making an excuse. Yeah. So you just – you got to kind of suck it up and internalize it and take all the grief everybody's saying about you within your own market in the industry, because no one, the only people that really understand what I'm saying are the people that have actually done the job. And that's Bob Gebhardt, myself, Jeff Breidish, and now Bill Schmidt. Everybody else just wouldn't get it. Right. They wouldn't get it. Right. Well, you did go to the World Series, though, in 2000. We did. Two th yeah. And, and um, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. yeah can you talk of, about that? You, 19 you won of our 25 kids were homegrown on that team. Wow, really? 19 yeah. to 20. That's incredible. That is incredible. Take us back to that team. What what did you love so much about it? You guys won you guys won 21 to 22 yeah. to end the year to force you the know, one game playoff. Honestly, we were frustrated all year long uh, because we had gone through this massive rebuilding process. You know, we had Helton, we had Garrett Atkins. I mean, we had guy, we had Tulo, we, you know, Cummins, we had uh, Matt Holiday, Kazmich, Matt Holiday. Matt Holiday, we had Brad Hopp. Guy could really hit. We had Tori Abla. We had a very functional pitching staff. So we felt like we had underachieved the whole year. And Kelly and I kept talking, like, gosh, darn, man. Like, we just felt like something was going to ignite this team. And we were playing a doubleheader. And we were down against the Dodgers in game one. And a guy named Sas uh, Sasaki was their closer, Kaz Sasaki. I mean, guys, yeah, yep, we yep. never got a hit off the guy. And we came back and won that game on a walk-off bomb by Helton. And I've never seen Helton 
with any emotion. And Todd just like lost it. We won the second game of the doubleheader. And it's like, I walked in the clubhouse. I'm getting goosebumps now. And I called Kelly that night and I said, I mean, buddy, something's different. He goes, well, I'm telling you, man. He goes, spiritually, damn, my heart's on fire. He says, I think we're about to want to roll. And we won 20 out of 21. And that's a true story. Oh, my gosh. Like, you can tell when a club just clicks. Like, you can just tell when – because we had a very close – the guys all loved one. None of that was – we had a great culture that year. It was just, you know, we had – we just hadn't played well for the majority of the season. And I really believe that we hadn't swept – the Diamondbacks, or if the the Indians had beaten the Red Sox, because they were up um, in that series. They just win one more game and lost three in a row. We sat for 10 days. I felt like if we had, if we were able to play Cleveland yeah. on our regular role, I'm not saying we would have won the World Series, but I think we would have been a compelling team to beat in the World Series. Yeah. But just, you can't, we lost our mojo as soon as the air came out of the balloon that year. Was Matt well, Holiday I, I safe know- at home? Was Matt Holiday safe at home? Can you, you know, I think on replay today, he'd probably be called out. Why he went head first slide <laughs> I just had to ask into Barrett and not just took him up into halfway up the backstop. Oh, I have no, cause he was totally blocking the plate and Maddie's a monster. I have no idea Yeah, because if he barreled him, the bear would have never got to the ball, got the ball. Yeah. He would have never got to the so ball. So true. Yeah. I, Dan, I know that I know that feeling's real because in 2006, when I was with the with the Tigers, it happened the same way. We swept Oakland. We end up having seven days off between you know having to come back to the to the, play the Cardinals, and we lost in five games. We had eight errors, no one hit. We just we just we just, just could not going. to be played that It's way. not yeah. to be played. You don't you play. You're, you listen. You're we're grinders for a reason. You play 162 games in 180 days. All of a sudden, the postseason comes and like these you know, days off in between it's like games. Mentally, you just you, something shuts down yeah. mentally on guys, and they have trouble restarting the engine again. Yeah, getting it going. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Todd Helton. I mean, listen. I I was in the same draft as Helt. I played against him in the Cape Cod League in 19, 1994. One of the best hitters I've ever seen. Then when I saw him in the big leagues, one of the best hitters this game's ever had. Now. When going into Cooperstown, people will talk about, hey, he played in Colorado, his splits are different, you know, on the road and at home. What would be your argument to the people that say Todd Helton should not be in Cooperstown? Well, I mean, his his jaw number, which I think is a great, is better than Willie McCovey. There are like six first basements. His road OPS, which I think is a great number because it factors out park factors, a uh, great statistic because it factors in park factors is higher than Carly Skrimsky and about seven or eight other Hall of Famers. Wow. So with all the difficulties I talked about hitting at home and hitting on the road, you know, he did all that with all the challenges in front of him. And I can tell you, Case, Todd had a bad back uh, pretty much second half of his entire career. And there were times I never even thought he could play. And that was the difference between him and Larry Walker um, because there are certain players in the game will only play when they're 100% healthy because that's just how they're wired. And there's other players in the game, man, they're going to they're gonna nut up and they're going to play. Yeah. If they can drag themselves on the field, they're going to play. His numbers even suffered through that because he played when he should not have been playing. Wow. But we were so bad in a lot of those years. He was like the only guy that could actually do anything. Um, and so – you know, I have just a tremendous amount of respect for Todd. I mean, the only regret that I have, I wish I was a little bit closer to Todd and more mature in myself and my own journey. Um, because, you know, I just, I, I, at times I wondered if he ever 
really loved – I think he loved the game but enjoyed the game. I think there's a big gap. Yeah. Like so many great players, the game torments them. And <laughs> it I think does. It, it torments well, it's so them. so hard. And, it's such a game of failure. It's like you just feel yeah, like you're and I just, beat up all the time. At times I wish, I wish he had more joy playing the game, truly had joy playing the game. But, you know, and I wish I was – you know, I wish I did a better job helping him find that joy from my perspective. And I got better at that as I got older. But then at, by that time, you know, he was near the tail end of his career. Could you do you think that you can you know that you that you can draft grit, or do you can you develop grit? You know, I think of Todd Helton. I think you're talking right there. That's a gritty player right there. I think you can make a player tougher. I don't think that you can make a a player that doesn't have grit be a gritty player. Mm. I think I think we're all a byproduct. You are Chinchar. We're a byproduct of our life experiences, and the issue that I have with showcases and rankings in today's game is I think it creates a mindset in kids that they don't know how to fight through adversity. And all the game gives you is adversity. So if I have two players, one incredibly talent that's had this free path, you know, this monopoly game, get my $200 and pass go, or I have a player that's a little bit less talent that's had had grind his ass and works his ass off to be the very best he can be, I'm always taking that player because when the game counts the most, he's going to figure out how to get it done, and he's always going to be the better teammate because he understands empathetically how hard the game is. Mm. I love that, man. And it's just like you said earlier, having a chip on your shoulder sometimes is a good thing. I go back at my career, like I kind of had that bumpy road. It wasn't oh, just given yeah. to me. So like, oh, you're too slow? Oh yeah, chip. Hey, you don't hit for enough power? Chip. You don't play enough good dip defense? Chip. And then when you see me, when it's time to go, hey, listen, man, I'm battle tested. Like I'm coming for you. Like I, I'm the storm that's going to rage right through you. Like, and you, you know what? The guy that just got there, because I, Danny, I saw a ton of guys in the minor leagues that had more talent than me. And I'm like, dude, you know, you, you, 0 for 4, you know, guy goes 0 for 1, this guy's 0 for 4. He can't deal with the failure. He's like, failure's not feedback to him. To me, yeah. it was like, oh, I'm 0 for 3. I'm going to rip someone's head off to be 1 for 4. But I didn't just get that. I got that because I got beat down so much on the way up. And Correct. I just yes. said, I'm not yeah. giving up. And that's why talented players don't make it in the game of baseball. Because from a very early age, they've been pampered to the point where they feel like they should be the ones saying, where they should hit in the lineup, when they should be promoted to the next level, what's their path to the big leagues. Yeah. And those are the players that focus – they spend so much time watching the performance of guys around them and in front of them, they never take care of their own performance. And the, the only way to get to the big leagues and be the very best you can be, you have to work harder than you knew it was possible to work every single day until it becomes part of your DNA. Then you'll be a great player, or you'll be as good as your ability is going to allow you to be. Mm, that is so great. well said, man. Great. That is so well said. And I think this game too, Dan, like when I, when I think of Todd Helton and I think of, you know, some of the greats out there, like if you can't go one pitch at a time, if you can't respond quickly when the failure hits you in the face, you know, when you're 0 for – Four, then 0 for 8, 0 for 12. The best players, they respond quicker. Right? They, they, they're able to respond quicker. The guys that don't last, the, 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 the game eats them up and they respond, but they respond three weeks later. 
And next thing you know, you know you're, Casey, you're out of the game. It's what we were talking about on the desk. The happiest players are the ones that they don't give a shit. They don't give right. a shit what a writer says. They don't care what their manager says. They don't care what their hitting coach says. They don't care what their GM says. They don't care what their farm director says. They're so focused on taking care of their own house. Yeah. All that other white noise, that doesn't mean anything to them. When you get to that point, yeah, then you've got a chance to be the very best player you can be. Oh, that's such a great point. It is such a great point. I, I try to tell my own kids – uh, you know, and, and that uh, played college baseball, but also kids that I work with, your care factor has to go down. And they're like, what is that? What do you mean by that? Your people pleasing factor, you're, you know, at the end of the day, when you get in that batter's box, no coach that's telling you anything, no mom and dad, no, no anybody in your life is in that box with you. Because at the end of the day, you stand alone. And you stand alone on the bump. You stand alone in, in, in the field. It's the, ultimate, it's the ultimate individual sport, team sport. You're always alone. So, like, if you haven't learned to have that me versus me mentality of, like, no, I'm going to be the most positive person I can be with myself. Oh, right, when I'm struggling, I'm about to get it going. If you can't do that and you're too worried about whether, what other people think, this is the game not for you then because this game sure. will absolutely eat your soul. And, you know, you'll find, too, that um, staff people in general, whether it's college coaches or professional people, it's the cycle of teaching. They teach the way they were taught. And right. so it, it never breaks. So I always told my kids, like, keep your, keep your anticipation level high, your expectation low. Don't expect anything from anybody else because they only can be who they are. Mm. Don't expect them to be what they should be in the role that they're in because they can only be who they are. So just listen to what is important. Disregard what's not and take care of your own business because that's under your control. Dude, that is so good. I, I get it. I, I have so many questions now. So you as a, as a young scout or you as, 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 you know, you were a minor league director, GM, all this stuff, evaluating players. How do you talk to your staff? Because I say not, nothing can ruin a, a good prospect than a coach that's that wants to put his stamp on that prospect. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to get yeah. this guy to get his hands up. And if he hits bombs, I'll get the credit. I mean, I've seen hitters ruined because you know, guys don't know what they're looking at. How do you get, how do you teach your developers, your coaches to, Hey man, let these, let these guys back off, let them have some failure, get, get, yeah. get them some experience well, first before you jump in and tell them what to do. It evolved over the years for me simply because in Cleveland, it was really all about the X's and O's. And fundamentally, when I started, I just was blessed that I had people like uh, Boyd and Johnny Goral, Minnie Mendoza, Gordy yeah. oh, McKenzie, Harry Spielman, that were other-oriented people. They were just other-oriented people. But as I evolved, honestly, Case, I didn't – certainly I wanted somebody that really could teach – but I wanted somebody more that could create authentic relationships with the kids because in today's players, if you could, if you can touch their heart, see every, every player, like I would like, this is going to sound crazy to you, but as I, I did this talk when I was a GM and I got more experience as a GM, I would call it my blessing and baggage speech. So I would go into our rookie levels after the draft and I was the GM of the club and I'd get everybody around me in these small little clubhouses and I would get up in front of them and I would do something that men have a hard time doing. I would show vulnerability. Mm. First time they've ever met me. I would say, 
hear all my baggage. I'm afraid of losing. I don't control my emotions well. I'm really insecure at times about losing my job. I mean, their eyes would be like, oh, my God, listen to what this guy's telling me. And then I would give him what my blessings were on top of that. Then I'd sit down and I'd go around the room and I'd make each kid do the same thing. And I'd have our staff people there creating notes. And so when those, the stuff that came out of that guys was mind boggling, by the way, like the stuff that kids would get up and say about mm. what's happened to them in their life would make you almost time lose your breath about, I've had kids stand up and say, I thought about taking my own life. I had kids get up and say I was sexually abused when I was young. I mean, it was all across the gambit. But I would do that because it would give us as an organization a foundation of understanding, okay, this where this kid's fears are based. So let's not worry about teaching them how to hit and throw and field a ground ball right now. Let's attack this. Let's try to turn them in to where they can be functional people you know, as teammates within their own being, and then they're going to be way better baseball players because the fear factor won't cr always creep up when the game becomes hard. So I evolved in that, Casey, really trying, case, trying to really understand that I wanted our staff. By the way, the staff had to get up and two in front of all the players and do it. Mm. I wanted our staff to really authentically get to know these kids in a way these kids had never been touched before in their life. So whether – they made it to the big leagues with us or they, or they didn't. I wanted their experience with our organization to be life-changing in some way, shape, or form. The other amazing thing, I'm sorry to jump in on this, but from a managerial standpoint, hearing you talk about that is, in my opinion, what you did for those people at the same time is you l reminded them that the people that they were competing with to get that next level or that next job or whatever were also human beings. I've worked at some places where like the human element goes away and you become a number. And it seems like that, that, and I was going to ask you, this, this is kind of like a half follow-up or a one a to what you're talking about right now. It's like we had Mark Shapiro on the other day and he was like that your influence on him and the people who influence him. He's like, Oh my God, I'm 26 years old and I have a 55 year old boss who I'm telling what to do. How did you also empower the youth, uh, the exuberance of youth of the people that you were managing and also letting them play the game plan the way you wanted to play it, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I was blessed. Like in Mark's case, I mean, incredibly, incredibly bright, but also humbled when he was young at the same point in time with incredible good listening skills. And so I was a bull in a china shop. Mark had better feel and understanding of that at a very young age than I did. I think growing her up around the game with his dad is just a complete understanding of the emotional side of the game. So some of the things that I'm talking about now, Mark had it at a very, very early age. And it was a perfect compliment to me because I mean, like there were times and that's the, the Indian staff loved me. I guarantee you guys, there were times they went out and had, they had drinking nights just for trying to imagine a way to kill me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I know that one. Trust me. And so Mark was a perfect compliment for me at that point in time, because he was a really good people person and he had innate leadership skills at a very early age. So Chinch, I think it's more about not a person's age, but it's more like who they are and what they've done with their life experience up to that point in time. 
And I think we were just blessed in Cleveland to hire a lot of those kind of people that just related well to the older guys. And the older guys, I mean, they were all good guys too. And they were always trying to learn the game. Um, and they were also afraid of me a little bit. Honestly, they were afraid of me because that, you know, I, there, there's a fear in life of confrontation. Somehow I missed the class on that. <laughs> um, so I, I never was afraid of confrontation because I always looked at it as an opportunity to get better in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Well, um, Danny, you've been at MLB Network now seven, eight years. Do you want to get back in the game? Did you want to I get back case. in the game? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think when I – I left the Rockies for a couple reasons – Number two, the structure of the organization. I think that you have political capital, and then I think those jobs have like ex expiration dates on because you lose your political capital. And I think if you don't win enough, you lose political capital. Dick was a wonderful owner, and he would have employed me to the day I, I dropped dead. I felt I had run out of my time in Colorado, and I thought I was doing a disservice to the organization to stay in my current role. I really did. I felt like I was getting in the way. Now, I wouldn't have transitioned the way that he did. I would have went in a different direction if, to replace me. But ultimately, I don't own the club. That was, you know, his decision and his right to make that decision. But I was also physically and emotionally drained. And I never knew how much until it took me like two years, really, physically and, and mentally to recover. Um, but I thought I would get back in the game. And honestly, that never came around for me. I really never got an opportunity to provide a vision for what I'd want to do in an organization in a normalized environment. And I had so many ideas and I had taken some copious notes. I had a whole blueprint ready to go. It just never happened. So I think what happens in life, I think all males go through transition phases like Chinch, you're, you went through one and Case, you went through one as you retire. I think there's all males go through these transitions. And I say to people, change is really good in life. Transition's a bitch. Because you identify yourself being this one person for so long that it takes on kind of your personality of who you are. And all of a sudden, you're not that person anymore. <laughs> and so that's hard, man. You're constantly wrestling with your demons. And I, I think you become a little transformational in your own spiritual journey when you begin to recognize your issues within yourself and you're battling those issues. But then when you get to the other side of that, you become a better person. And so, I, I mean, the Lord has definitely, for some reason, shut those doors on me. And when you, when you believe in Christ, it's not your job to question those motives. Your job is to accept that and move on. And, it, and the blessing was, is that I started a company with my oldest son, Chris, that I never would have started if I mm. jumped back into the game. And we've, we've grown from, you know, a small little three-person startup with no money to be in a multi-million dollar, 75 person company that's just exploding in win reality. Win reality. And though I'm not like in re not like intimately involved to the point where, you know, I would be running a team because I don't want to overwhelm him with my personality. You know, it like it's incredible to create some something that's really affecting kids' ability to to play the game and incredible future for in the bigger picture for our family that I never would have gotten running a team. But there's no doubt case when I left the Rockies, I did not think that was going to be my last opportunity game, but you are what your resume is. And I didn't win enough in Colorado. And I don't think owners in today's game 
from my perspective, would hire somebody that, I mean, I'm an old school guy that believes in new school principles because I've done it my whole career. But I, if I took a job, I would have zigged back to old school ways because I think there's a huge competitive advantage in that right now. But I'm not sure that today's owners would have related to that exceptionally well. But I am who I am, too. And I'm not going to yeah. change that because that's what I'm good at. Yeah. Well, you're good at MLB Network. I'm glad that we're. I'm glad we're that we're there together, man. We that was a good last week we had, and uh, we had a great you know, time. Yeah, it was fun. It was, a, it was a it was a lot of fun. Um, I just want to really quick. I want to stay on the win reality thing. This is one of the things I was going to end on, um, because do you think baseball is going this direction? Because you know everything else is going into the into the you know we're all going into the metaverse and you know everything is going no, vir- I don't. virtual. So no. I mean, dude, like like batting practice. Do you think guys won't take batting practice anymore? They just put the win reality goggles on. No, I, I I don't. Case here's what I here's what I think win reality is, and nothing more than this. But I think it's a huge competitive advantage. The hardest thing to do in the game of baseball at a young age is to hit a moving object. The hardest thing to do at an old age is continue to hit a moving object. The hardest thing to do in hitting a moving object is knowing to get your swing off. Simple as that. Uh, I've seen so many players that had just terrible inconsistent timing, had so many great physical school skills, like a Drew Stubbs, for an example, like jaw-dropping physical skills, but never got a swing off on time. And the whole foundation and principle of the company is the one thing that you can't teach in a game of baseball, no coach can teach, is to replicate the experience in the box where you got to see the ball out of the hand and understand when to get your swing off, your unique balance, rhythm, and timing to be able to compete. That's what we do. And we take batting practice in it. You can see ball flight. You can see all those metrics. But nothing is like getting in a cage, doing your soft toss, doing your other work, feeling the bat off the ball, seeing the ball flight without a a headset on. So in my mind, all we are is is an addition to what your routine actually is. And we will. I mean, we're close where you can take a full batting practice and so the kids that live in Pittsburgh that can't get out this time of year to hit uh, on the field, you know, you can hit in the confines of your garage, your bedroom, your living room. It doesn't matter. I am really, really proud of that. But we will never replace some of the physicality aspect of hitting because I do think there's a joy, like we talked about, like you were a great hitter. Like I, I told you about an article that I read about Roger Federer being this great tennis player. And somebody asked, well, how did you become so good? And he said, I just liked hitting the ball. And that sounds so cliche, but I think great hitters just like to hit. So I think we're just another aspect of where you can hit, but I don't think it replaces some of the traditional things within the game of baseball. And I don't is think there, it ever will. Is there any, have you guys, do you guys have the data at win reality to quantify and see, Hey, this really does work or this makes this person the yeah. 10% better at, at, at it's hitting sliders or hitting curveballs. Do you have yeah. the data now to prove that? Unbelievable. Like we have 85,000 users. So we have 85,000 test cases. Yeah, right. And so we know we can make velocity look less slower because all velocity is is picking it up earlier out of hands. When velocity, when you feel velocity on top of you, you're in trouble. When you can time velocity, you're going to hit it. And so, again, baseball is a game. Hitting is about mapping your brain. It's the more pitches you see on a consistent basis allows you to step in a box and be able to execute with effortless skill. That's all we do. We're just an adjunct. You can see case a hundred pitches in our system in 15 minutes. You can program it to say today, today I want to work off fastballs and changes today. I want to work off breaking balls. 
we now have personalized coaching we're about to roll out. We're, we're taking all younger guys that work in batting facilities across the country and we're hiring them to come into Austin. And they're getting in the experience with the kid. And they're helping the kid. So I'm like, okay, what did you see there? What you feel there? Let's go back and do it again. And then he is programming the pitches. So like he's the guy throwing and then the kid's reacting and then they're talking about it you know, before, after each session, because I've got pretty strict guidelines about not teaching the kid, not talking too much while they're in actually doing from it. You wait till they're done. But I mean, it's limitless what we can do. But again, I would never say that we replace live game experience and just getting on a field and seeing ball flight off the bat. I think it's irreplaceable. Wow. Incredible, man. It, it is it is it is impressive. And for anyone out there that's listening, if you ever get a chance to, uh, you know, get it to the win reality, what are the goggles called, Dan? Well, again, we're we're a software company, and so we don't sell the hardware. But uh, Meta, which used to be Facebook, yeah, it's yeah. the uh, Quest Two, the co- yeah, the Quest Two. Yeah, goggles. but there's a new company coming over that's going to be called Pico. <clears throat> we're going to be doing most of our work with them. Wow. So you gotta, you gotta, you can go through our website and buy the headset, but we don't sell the headset. We're just selling right the software that goes inside the experience. But, but I'm saying I've put it on before. It's incredible. You put these goggles on, you're like, oh my god, the guy feels like he's sixty feet, six inches away. Case, it is absolutely it, amazing. It, it's man. absolutely amazing. It, it, it's now, phenomenal. Paul Goldschmidt was, you know, just to give you, like, we love testimonials. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt called Chris up and said, uh, "I'd like to invest in your company." This was early on in the process, and Chris said. Why? He said, well, I, I randomly bought your system, uh, spring training, and I was going to face their closer, uh, Hesley. I, I, I was during spring training. I get in your system prior to that day, the next day in practice. I, it was live BP, so he was going to face him. Stepped in the box, and he looked identical to what I saw the night oh before. Oh, my said, God. And he said, so I'm all in. So he put in a significant amount of money for us, and he has been a dedicated user of our product since then. So, wow. I mean, he's a pretty good. He doesn't talk much about it because we don't ask the players to do that. Yeah, that's unfair of them. But we've got we got so many big leaguers using our product. They never swing in our system case. All they're doing is tracking pitches. Tracking pitches. They're just yeah. tracking pitches, trying to understand what what is this guy's pitch shape like. So when I get in the box, it doesn't feel foreign to me. Yeah, I love that man. Wow, incredible, incredible. Yeah, wish, it is, I had, a, it, wish I had that when we were playing. Well, it started. The idea started with the Indians. And wasn't existing back then because I couldn't find anything that could replicate game speed BP because hitting off machines don't hiring BP pitchers don't none of that works when I got to Colorado and I had the home road differences I mean I really was searching so this was a manifestation of my entire career trying to figure out a solution to a problem that I really felt existed in every stop I was in yeah awesome man awesome Hey, Dan, this has been great, man. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having yeah, me, man. Going down memory lane and just, you know, all, all the things. And and uh, it's incredible. Your story is incredible, man. And and where you're at now, I know you're in a great place, dude. And I'm, I'm enjoying doing stuff at the network. Looking forward to this season coming up. And, uh, you know, I know you're, I know Chinch is glad that, uh, you know, he's back with you for one show. Absolutely. Yeah, I love you guys very much. And I say that, uh, I really say that sincerely. I love you. I, I love getting to know Chinch. I miss him so much. I'm hoping to get to do something again with them at some point in time. And uh, Case, I've always loved you, man. You're, I mean, I loved all the players I was around, but some I loved a little bit more. And uh, <laughs> you, fall, you fall into that category. You just you make people better people, and uh, you got a gift. And I told you that. Don't ever lose that gift, buddy. 
Man, you're the best, Danny. I appreciate it, man. And thanks for your time. Okay. I really appreciate it. Have, have fun. Okay, man. See you soon, buddy. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Man, impressive. Dan, no, nobody more impressive than Dan O'Dowd. Uh, I mean, just the, the genius of look of listening to a guy that's been in the game that long, how he sees it from all different angles, um, the growth of him as a man, you know, and as a leader, it just in, incredible stuff. Yeah, very cool. Like, it's so funny. Like, he's so smart, but he's humble at the same time. It gives you a little push in your own head to be like, oh, I might be the smartest guy in the world, but if I, if I don't have humility, I, I can't take it with me and learn from it. And he taught us. I mean, the lessons that guy has taught me over my career, I'll never forget. He's a, he's a yeah. very big influence on my career. So, yeah, I mean. Love it, man. <laughs> so glad to have him on. So glad he's my friend. And uh, glad you're my friend, too, Chinch. <laughs> I'm glad you're my friend, too, Sean. We're kicking ass. Nikki Cass is out there. We got, we've had so many guests over these past couple months, Sean, and you're rocking yeah. it out. We did that five-day-a-week thing. We're still doing it, but now we're getting, like, we got big-time dudes rolling around Let's here. Let's go, baby, yeah. I'm getting yeah, a little intimidated. Yeah. I feel like we might be celebrities pretty yeah. soon. Well, if you're you a celebrity. Gone, if, you, if you missed any of the shows, go back and listen to some of the shows. Yeah. But Nikki yeah. Cass is, is one you don't want to miss, man. Yeah, that was exactly. a great show. Yeah. Great show. Yeah. All right. All right, brother. Chinchy, and uh, I'll see you later. I'll see you tomorrow. And everyone out there, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Keep spreading the word, spreading the uh, – The, uh, the what, cheer. What, Spread the yeah, cheer spread for the, the mayor's cheer. office. No, no, and also spread the su- subscribe yes, button. Yes, please do that. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's one button. Just click the button. Download, subscribe. Yes. Hit the button one time. All right, brother. <laughs> I love you. I'll talk to you. Cheers. Have a great day, brother. Me too.